0: You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at hcbc.com. Please enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. I want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church, and whether you're at Line or at Steiner Ranch or at Brushy Creek, or I guess you're not at Brushy Creek yet, it's still in my head, whether you're at one of our locations... Or online, we're grateful to have you here. And I want to start with a question today. And the question is What does the word glory mean? It's kind of a strange word because we all know what it means, we think, but we seldom use the word. But this particular season, we've actually seen a pretty big display of glory with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, the longest reigning monarch of the British monarchy. And how Britain and the world has responded to her passing and how they've honored her has been this incredible display of glory. Right now in Great Britain, there are all kinds of political issues that are taking place, economic issues, problems that they're facing, but when the queen died, They declared 10 days of mourning, and during those 10 days, there was no parliamentary business taking place. The Bank of England did not raise its interest rates during that week, and the sporting activities were canceled as the people gathered to honor the queen. Now, how many of you, show hands, like somewhere along the way, you spent a little bit of time watching some of the procession. Well, I just want you to know that you are the in group because 4.1 billion people around the globe paid attention and were watching that. That's half the world's population. So those who didn't pay any attention to it, I guess you're on the outs, right? You don't fit in with the world, right? But anyway, it was an amazing, amazing event. And when we talk about what took place, we we see the the line up of people going to Windsor Castle. Just people came and drove. In fact, the queue to be able to walk past her uh, draped coffin Took between 12 and 16 hours just to get through the line, and people waited. That's how long this line was. And it wasn't just the average people, there were no Disney fast passes. Even the most important people, like the David Beckhams of the world, waited in that queue to be able to give honor to the Queen for her life. Uh, the, the absolute majestic way that everybody approached this was just a display. Of glory now the word glory actually comes from the Hebrew word to beat to mean heavy something that's weighty that carries substance so from that we get the meaning of something that's important something that's significant something that's awe-inspiring so when you stand and look at the massive grandeur of a mountain range Or maybe you study the life of an individual that's had an amazing impact on the whole world. Or perhaps you're listening to a piece of music that was composed by somebody that all of the violinists in the world would try to master that music for centuries, playing for centuries. All of those are examples of glory. They're examples of glory. And so when we understand the weight or the significance or what's most important, it will make its way not only into our hearts, but it will also make its way into our calendar. It actually becomes what drives us what we do. You look at your calendar and you can tell what in your life is the most glorious, the biggest, the most weighty, because that's what you're giving your time to. So we're going to be looking at glory through the eyes of the prophet Ezekiel. And some of you are saying, Ezekiel? Like there's a book in the Bible called Ezekiel? There absolutely is. And let me just tell you, it's one of the most interesting and strange books in the whole Bible. Now, How we got to Ezekiel, um, let me just tell you the, the truth. So a year ago, I was on sabbatical, and I was going through all of the books of the Bible that I had preached through in the almost 34 years that I've been your pastor. And I preached through almost every book in the Bible, a couple of them twice. And of the few that I haven't preached through, Ezekiel was just kind of looking at me. And so I started looking at Ezekiel, and God started speaking to me about preaching the book of Ezekiel. Now, now what's so interesting is the reason why I've always not considered it a book to be preached is because it's long, 48 chapters. In addition to that, it's strange. The content is strange. The message is strange. And the, the period in time when it occurred is a really strange period of time. And yet... As God started speaking and I started studying, I actually took a seminary class to work through this book and as our team began to look at what the book was actually saying, I realized that the message of Ezekiel is a message to the American church today. A message that we need to hear. And the reason why we need to hear this message today Is because the church of Jesus Christ in the United States does not have a messaging problem. It does not have a leadership problem. It does not have a relevance problem. The church of Jesus Christ has a glory problem. And the Christians... Who name the name of Jesus, who would call themselves committed followers of Jesus Christ? Let's face it. We have a glory problem. In fact, here's the way I say it. That's how I wrote it. The church has a glory problem. As Christians today, we trivialize our commitment to the holiness and mission of our glorious God. We have replaced his glory with the inglorious idols of our consumer culture. And you know what they are. Affluence, success, comfort, busyness, and even the infamous likes that we all need. Now, those inglorious idols demand our full attention And so we cram our schedules completely packed with the activities leading to those things as if they're the most important. And while we're doing that, cramming our schedule, chasing the American dream, going full after what the culture says is important, entertainment, affluence, success, we drive our children in that direction, and all the while, We're raising our stress levels, we're ruining our relationships, and we're obscuring the things that are really valuable. And the result of that is our families, our communities, and even our country is falling apart right before us. Now what you'd think we would do is repent. Like Christians, we would repent of worshiping these idols and giving our full time to them, that we would stop doing that. But no, that's not what we do. Not only do we not repent, but we double down on our activities. We add more, drive our kids harder, and while we're doing that, we long for the glory days of the past. We think of a time when life was simpler, when two people could sit down over dinner and actually look at each other, rather than look at the back of the screen of the person across from them. We long for those days. I wish those days would come back. We long for the days when we didn't have to run at the pace we're running at. We long for the days when we didn't have to buy a new house every five years because the one that we were living in got obsolete, or buy a new car every year because the one we have, like the plugs aren't exactly fitting my new smart device that I just got. I've got to have that that we would think differently and we long for the days when simple things were true like men were men and women were women and we didn't have to worry about that like that all made sense to us we long for those days listen 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 the fact that you're clapping about that (laughs) is part of the problem Because as Christians, we ought to be longing for the glory of God. And what we want to do is keep chasing these cultural idols and running our lives into the ground and hoping that everything is going to get better or go backwards. And the book of Ezekiel shouts very loudly at us that God's glory, when fully understood, will bring us to a place Where life makes sense again, where we have something to contribute to make the culture and the world around us actually a different place. In fact, we're going to look at this as we dive into the first chapter today. So grab your Bibles and be ready to be disturbed. Just be ready for it. Be ready to open your eyes to the glory of God. And so, as we start the first, as we start the first, two ver- first three verses, we're going to see the setting, and we're going to see the surprise that glory actually shows up in Babylon. Okay, here we go. Verse 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, I was among the exiles by the Kibar River. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, that's the words of Ezekiel. The next two, two verses are the editor coming in to try to make sure we know exactly the time in history when this is happening. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibbi River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, oh, oh, let me get you up to speed really quickly on what's taking place here. The recording of this book of Ezekiel is not some kind of weird, mystical, prophetic book. He's grounding this on days, specific days, specific years in history where we have extra-biblical literature that clarifies this is exactly being recorded in time. Okay? And the time surrounding this is a moment of devastation in the history of Israel. You see, for centuries, the nation of Israel had been rejecting the word of God, the covenant that they committed to when God gave them their land. They had been following other idols, the idols of their culture, the ones I just mentioned, oh, they had faces and names, like Asherah and Baal, we'll look at those in the future, but essentially they were following the, the goal of affluence and prosperity, they were following the goal of set, personal satisfaction of appears, like all of those were embedded in their worship of these idols, and the culture was falling apart and God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, telling them to repent and turn back to the Lord and they just kept going. And finally God says, I'm done. I'm going to take you into captivity for 70 years, and after that, the remnant that emerges will be ready to follow me. And he begins to execute that in 605, when Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and there, he looted the temple, and he carried away a couple of their key leaders. One of those was Daniel, and he went into captivity. Well, he set up Jehoiachin as his vassal puppet king to lead in his stead and pay tribute. And then he went back to Babylon. And a few years later, in 597, um, Jehoiachin rebelled. He came back this time. This time he surrounded the city, captured the city. He took Jehoiachin and 10,000 people the intelligentsia, the business leaders, like everybody that was of a level that would have this rebellious spirit. He took all those and he took them back to Babylon and there after five months of marching in chains, they they walked through the grandeur and the glory of the city of Babylon and landed in a refugee camp outside the river. Five years go by and Ezekiel is part of this group of people that feel like God rejected them while he's still loving and taking care of the people in Jerusalem. We'll find out what happens in a couple of weeks. So here he is sitting by the Kaba River and he's supposed to be a priest. In fact, the date here that he mentions when he was sitting there is his 30th year At age 30, those born into the priesthood would take their vows and begin going into the temple to be near the glory of God, and he is in exile. And I can imagine what he's thinking. God, how could you do this to me? Like, why me? I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem at the temple. Why am I here? You've forgotten me, you've forsaken me. Maybe you've had a time in your life where you felt exactly that way. like God." This is not my plan for my life. Like, what are you doing? How come you're not shaping this the way I've designed it? I've experienced that. I remember when I was going to college, my my parents had a desire for me to go to a Christian college, and I had a desire to play basketball, so I picked one that had a good basketball team, worked out, got ready, showed up, walked into the coach's office and said, I'm here. He looked at me. I'll never forget the words he said. He said, son son, we got 17 guys on scholarship and we're not even gonna have tryouts. And I went back to my dorm room and sat down and said, God, what in the world? Like what in the world? I'm 800 miles from home, I don't know anybody. And here I'm stuck and I'm not getting to do what I know I'm supposed to be doing. And for that whole freshman year, I spent that freshman year trying to prove to myself that God did not exist because I was so angry But before the year was over, God revealed himself to me and I bowed on my knees and I said, God, you exist. You got my life, I'll give you my life. I had to see him before I was ready. And that's what happens with Ezekiel. In fact, we're gonna get a picture of the vision where God's glory is revealed in a terrifying experience. So starting into verse four, we're going to read a passage that describes a vision of God that Ezekiel sees. And this is the strangest thing you could ever imagine. Um, Some of you may want to actually try to draw this picture while I'm reading the passage and see if you can do it. Now let me just give you a hint Part of the reason why it's so hard to understand is because he's actually looking at something supernatural in nature that he's never seen before, and so as he writes, he's writing in Hebrew, and the Hebrew is a mess. He can't conjugate his verbs. He mixes up his plurals and his singulars. He stops in the middle of a thought and then restarts it someplace later. He gets halfway through a word and stops writing. What's happening? It's a person that's looking at something that is blowing their mind, and in the midst of it blowing their mind, they're trying to record what's happening, and so it almost feels a little nonsensical. Now, here's the bad thing. The English translation tries to clean it up they try to fill in the gaps and so they really make a mess out of the whole thing so I'm going to walk you through it now I'm going to explain to you what's going on here because we see this in other places in scripture that's much more clear so here's what he sees this is the vision in verse 4 He says, I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning, and surrounded by brilliant light, the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. So all of a sudden, he's sitting there, and the storm is coming toward him, black cloud, lightning, but the sky around it, rather than being dark, is brilliant with light, and right in the middle is this fire. This glowing fire. Now as it approaches him, he begins to see more clearly and he sees the four living creatures. In verse 5, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. So, human-like figure, except for the feet, like an ox, four faces, wings, hands, he sees that, and then in verse 10, he describes their faces. Their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wings of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. And then in verse 13, the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and shining. Fl- bright and shining lightning sh- flashed out of them. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. So you got these four creatures, strange looking, wings touching each other, moving fast burning coals in the middle of them, flashes of lightning coming from them, And then he goes on to describe some wheels. So we have the storm, we have the four living creature, now we have the wheels in verse 15. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. So it appears like that. He keeps using these words like the wheel is not just this way, there's another wheel like this intersecting. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Okay, let's continue. In verse 18, their rims, the rims of the wheels, were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. Now, how can wheels be full of eyes? Great question. Now, if you go to the Akkadian word for eyes here, that would be bright, shiny uh, gemstones. If you go to the Hebrew word, it actually means eyes, the ability to see. So I guess you'd never hit a bump with these wheels because they would know what was, what was in front of them. Verse 19, when the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So there's this energy that's connecting the living creatures and the wheels and the movement and the coordination so let me give you an artist rendition of what this may have looked like, which may help you a little bit. And you can show me your, your hand drawings after, afterwards. Okay, here, here's a picture of what this may have looked like. So we've got four living creatures, their wings are raised, touching each other. They've got four faces, they've got what looks like the body of a man, the hoofs of a, ca- of a cow. And with each one of them are these wheels that can go in all different kinds of directions. Who are they and what is this? Who they are, the living creatures, they are the cherubim. The cherubim are the highest order of angelic beings with the responsibility of guarding the glory of God. You say, how do you know that? Because chapter 10 calls them the cherubim. And actually, if you go to Revelation chapter 4 and read that chapter, you're going to see the creatures, the four living creatures with the four faces. These are the creatures that stay with God, and they're really weird looking, And they represent a lot of things that we don't have time to talk about today. So what is this whole structure? This whole structure is a chariot. And it's not just any old chariot to haul somebody around. This is a war chariot. And it moves at rapid speed. And the coals of fire are actually the coals from the altar, which are used to burn away or purify sin. God is on the move, and he's on the move in judgment here. Then we see what Ezekiel sees next as he looks up from the wheels, up to the top, verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice and awesome under the expanse their wings were stretched out one toward the other each had two wings covering his body and when the creatures moved i heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing water like the voice of the almighty like the tumult of an army and when they stood still quiet they lowered their wings now look at the sounds When this chariot is on the move, it's like God speaking. It's like an army coming. This is a war chariot, and God is driving it. Verse 25, there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. And then he doesn't even tell us what the voice said. He just stops in the middle of the sentence. We don't even know. And it goes on and says, Above the expanse, over the head, their heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire. Think beautiful blue. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from the appearance to be his waist up. He looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. So you think about what metal does when it glows in a fire. It's like the fire's inside. And... and the external of this man is just glowing. And he says, and from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds. On a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. So he's just glowing all around him. And then Ezekiel says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he doesn't say this is God. I don't think he actually knows, but he understands that God is showing him his glory as a warrior who's coming to judge his people and to protect those who are in exile because they think they're the ones who've been forgotten by God, and they will literally, by the time we finish the book, we'll understand they are actually going to be the remnant that God will save in the end. So, what do you do when you see God? A lot of people tell me, hey, when I see God, I got a few things I'm going to ask him. <laughs> when I see God, I got a few complaints I'm going to level. God, like why did you let this stuff happen to me? You have to answer for that. You're supposed to be good. Why would you do that? You you got a lot to explain to me. Fat chance. What happens to you when you stand in the presence of the glory of the being that spoke a word, let there be light, and all of the universe came into existence? What do you do when you stand in the presence of love that says, I will give my son as a sacrifice, for your sin, so you are not consumed. What will you do when you stand in front of the judge of the universe who created you to live a holy and righteous life, and you didn't? What will you say? What will you do? Here's the response. The response to God's glory? God's glory leaves us face down and listening. That's how Ezekiel ends the chapter. He says, when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. From this moment in Ezekiel's life, everything changes. His priority, his passions, his obedience, everything changes. The fact that we can cling to the worthless idols of a consumer culture would imply that we have a glory problem. That we have a glory problem. The fact that we would demand that God give us a life filled With comfort and ease that shows that we have a glory problem we don't know who's the most important we ourselves oftentimes act and think like we are the most important and then we turn around and tell our kids that they're the most special thing in the universe they're the ones who within them have all of this glory they deserve a wonderful existence. We just don't even know who God is at times. Now, I want us to look at the implications of this, both in the book and for our personal lives, because God In many ways, um, he reveals his glory in the strangest places. And here we see him showing up and showing Ezekiel that he's not confined to the temple. He actually is with the people in exile. Ezekiel is thinking, like, I can't be a priest here because, God, you're not here. You're in that box in the temple. Do we do that? Do we say, God, I've got space in my life, some unique little places that I'm going to tuck you away? If you do, you've got a glory problem. And God's glory shows up in the strangest places. I think Brian Dorsey learned this lesson. Let's watch together.
1: My name is Brian Dorsey. My wife, Gina, and my two boys, Luke and Levi live in Lago Vista, Texas. 10 years ago, I was a small businessman. I had 18 retail stores in four different states and I was very much of the world. I was running the rat race, doing everything that I could to try to make myself happy or to find joy in this world, but it never came. And then I met my wife and there was just something unique about her. So as we started to date, as I started to get to know her, I soon found out that the difference in her was that she loved Jesus. We started attending Hill Country Bible Church, and I knew that I desired a closer relationship with Jesus. And the first thing that he started to do when he was reordering my life was, he got me to really start thinking beyond myself. And although I'd never been to prison, never been to jail, never been arrested, He made it abundantly clear that he wanted me to get involved with prison ministry so a few weeks later i found myself in a car on the way to a prison with a friend of mine and i'm glad i didn't ask a whole lot of questions because en route there he mentioned something about death row and i said hold on death row i thought that was in huntsville and he said they live at the polunsky unit where we're going in livingston but you don't have to worry about that because they're housed separately and no one's really allowed to go in there so when I walked into to this gymnasium, preparing to have church, and I found myself standing amongst 300 men in white with one officer, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, as I affirmed, and I knew exactly where he wanted me to be. Church was just beyond amazing, and I started to come back as frequently as I could. So every Wednesday, I wake up at 3:45, preparing for my four-hour drive to Livingston. I spend the day there with the men in closed custody, administrative segregation, and death row. Through the church there, the men have started a hygiene ministry. So we get to bring shampoo, deodorant, toothpaste, and soap to the men who have no connections on the outside, no support on the outside. They're locked in their six foot by 10 foot cell for 23 to 24 hours a day. Prison is one of the most racially divided places in America, but when you come into church, you can see all of these men from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, hugging each other, praying with each other, and that's only possible by one name, and that's Jesus. Some of the great changes that we've seen that have occurred in death row, we're now allowed to have church services We're now allowed to have baptisms. Used to be a place where guards didn't wanna work. There's joy. There's men singing. There's men praying for each other. There's men encouraging each other. The men who live there now call it life road. I've had so many men tell me that they're thankful that they ended up in prison because that's where they met God and where he saved their lives. Men have more freedom than anybody else in the world.
0: So, uh, what are you all doing at 3:45 this Wednesday morning? You're thinking, well, like, I've got a busy day on Wednesday. I've got this to do and this to do and this to do and this to do and this to do. do. Exactly. Are you getting the point? Exactly. Brian has seen the glory of God on what used to be called death row in Texas, where the men who are on death row waiting for their departure from this world are now calling it life row because the glory of God appears in the strangest places. And oftentimes, we're not in those places. Let me ask you, like, how is God's glory transforming every corner of your life? How are you participating with God in such a way That you see the glory of God and are involved in sharing the glory of God whatever you're doing and wherever you're going. Do you have a place that once was called death? And because you came with the glory of God, now it's called life? That's God. He's not confined to a box. He's not confined to a momentary prayer or confined to a worship service once a week. He is moving. And he wants you to move with him. We also see the glory of God in judgment. The war chariots come to bring judgment on the sins of the people of God and on the nations. Now I know that's strange for a lot of people because we think that the glory of God is only present in blessing. Only when God is blessing me do I think he's glorious. But God actually takes our sin seriously. In fact, in this book, 72 times God declares the judgment that he's bringing on his people and on the nations, where he's correcting them for what they've done to each other. God does that, and 72 times he finishes the statement of judgment, and he says this, and then they will know that I am God. I actually don't think many of us know that God is really God. And you know the time when we tend to find that out? When we recognize that God is bringing consequences into our life for our sin, and we know he loves us too much to let us travel a path that is harmful for us and harmful for the people around us and harmful for our world and God intervenes. In fact, God loves you so much that he was willing to take his own son, send him to earth, pour out the punishment for your sin and my sin on his son. That's how much he cares about righteousness and being right. That's how much he cares about forgiveness and freedom. And everybody in this life has a choice to choose Jesus now in this life and be forgiven because in the life to come, that choice is gone. And what's left is separation from the love and the glory of God. That's the reality. So God says, even for those who put their trust in Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves... Like a gracious father, he disciplines and he corrects every one of us. Sometimes I think we feel like the problems in our life are probably just circumstantial, and oftentimes I think it's God trying to get our attention, but we don't recognize the glory of God in the times he pulls us up and says, I want you to know that this is not okay. This is not okay. If you don't have a trembling in the presence of Almighty God while you're participating in sin, you don't understand the glory of God. There's one more truth that we need to draw from this, and that is God's glory is revealed in the future. It's revealed in the future. When we get to the end of the book, God will begin to talk about how he's going to regather his people, how he's going to keep his covenant, how after they've gone through the, the punishment for what they've done, God is going to bring them back. And then he begins to talk about the life to come, the future for all of us. And many of us are longing for the good old days. If we could just get back to there, we could hang on to our idols and the world would be a little bit better. And what God is saying to us is, Forget about your idols. Pursue me because the glory is actually coming in the future. Now this year, I had the privilege of leading a group of people on the journeys of Paul. So we went through the the places that Paul visited on his his journeys and we started in Rome. And Rome was a phenomenal experience because there's so much glory in Rome. Whether whether you're at the, the Pantheon seeing this building that... How did these guys figure out how to do this dome, which everybody's copied since then, and it still stands today, to the Colosseum, where the great battles were fought? Like, everything there is big and glorious. Now, Paul lived during those days, walked those streets, preached the gospel in those streets, and as you walk through the old ruins of Rome, you come to a little, tiny prison that they built a chapel on top, where two famous people spent their last time on earth. So the Romans didn't keep prisoners. They killed prisoners unless they were political. And one of those was Peter. He spent his last days there before he was crucified upside down. And the second one was Paul. And he spent his last days. And when you go down into the Mamertine prison, this is all that's there because this is all there was. This is down below ground level, cold, wet when it rains. There's no light in here except for the little hole in the ceiling where they lower prisoners down through. And there, with a bucket and a place to sit, there's Paul, probably for up to two years. The one who spent his life making sure that the gospel got out and came to us is spending his time sitting in the infamy of a prison. And from that cell, he pens his last words in the book of 2 Timothy. And here's what he says. He says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. In other words, I know... I know they're going to take me out and they're going to cut my head off and my life will be over. And then he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, watch this, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Jesus getting off of his throne and walking up to the Apostle Paul and with those nail scarred hands picking up the victor's wreath and placing it on his head. You see, Paul understood glory and it wasn't in the good old days, it wasn't living a life for the moment. There is a day coming. There is a day coming, and it will be the most glorious day that you will ever experience when you stand face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and you'll look into the face of divinity and love. And on that day, what you chose to do with your life will be revealed. And here's the promise. Paul didn't stop with himself. He went on to pen these words, and not to me only, but also to all who have longed for His appearing, who have made the return of Christ, standing in God's presence, who have made that moment the moment to live for, not for a college acceptance letter, not for a first job in the field that I love, Not in finally being able to afford a new car. Not in getting awards on your phone. Little flippy things, you know what I'm talking about? For taking a certain number of steps. But for having lived your life Prioritizing the glory of God and building your life around putting God at the focal point for yourself and your children and pursuing that fully. And someday, when you stand in the presence of the glory of God, when Jesus Christ greets you, you will say, Ezekiel, thank you for reminding me That there's something more glorious than this life. Don't long for the good old days. Look forward to that day. Bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you for the people that make up this church. So many faithful people who desire you above all things. And Father, I pray that our church, each of us together, would break free from the craziness of this consumer culture, from the idols of this world, that we would have the freedom to step out and experience your glory by being distinctively focused on you. Father, I pray that this week each of us would make steps and move toward you for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To hear
0: other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at hcbc.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.